Well, good morning. Good morning. I hope everyone is doing well. Is my mic on? Can y'all hear me? Okay, okay. Hope everyone's doing well this morning. It's a joy to be with you. I, I, I always jump at the opportunity to uh, teach at colleges or seminaries. Uh, it's just something I really, really enjoy doing and uh, so very grateful for this opportunity. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer and we will begin. Father, we're grateful for your mercy to us. We're grateful for your provision. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and the work that he has accomplished for us on the cross. We thank you for the sanctifying work of your Holy Spirit. We thank you that you have uh, given to us your word, your sufficient word. And we pray that uh, your Holy Spirit would illumine the meaning of your word to us now, to our hearts and minds, that we would live lives of obedience to that word, all for the glory of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, I am an evangelist. I travel across the United States and around the world preaching and teaching. And my first love is exposition. My first love is just expositing the Word of God, going through the Word of God verse by verse. But what I'm most well known for is this seminar that I've developed entitled Clouds Without Water. And Clouds Without Water is a reference in the book of Jude, verse 12. Jude refers to false teachers in a number of different ways. He says, they are hidden reefs in your love feast. They feast with you uh, without fear, caring only for themselves. And that is one of the hallmarks, by the way, of a false teacher. A false teacher does not care about you, does not care about God, cares only for himself or herself. And then Jude says that they are clouds without water. And the picture there that Jude draws for us is that false teachers have the appearance of having some nourishment, but nothing ever falls from them. They leave the ground below them dry and parched. And my seminar deals specifically with what is called the Word of Faith movement, also the New Apostolic Reformation. Uh, the Word of Faith movement is more commonly known as the Health and Wealth Gospel, the Name and Enclaimment Gospel, the Prosperity Gospel, basically the doctrine that says it is always God's will for a Christian to be wealthy, and it's always God's will for a Christian to be physically healed. We should never be sick. Or if you do get sick, then physical healing is guaranteed, provided that you have enough faith. As long as you have enough faith, or as long as you sow a seed, in other words, give money into a particular ministry, sow a seed so you can reap a harvest. If you ever hear a preacher ask you or tell you to sow a seed so you can reap a harvest, run like the wind. You know you're dealing with a false teacher. Uh, so it's always God's will to be wealthy. It's always God's will to be physically healed. Uh, this movement is led by people such as Benny Hinn, Kenneth and Gloria Copeland, Creflo Dollar, Jesse Duplantis, Joyce Meyer, Joel Osteen, uh, Bill Johnson, uh, Heidi Baker, Todd White. Uh, the Word of Faith movement, New Apostolic Reformation, they're, they're slightly different, uh, but they're basically one and the same. Uh, New Apostolic Reformation, kind of the, the headquarters of that would be in Bethel, uh, California, excuse me, Redding, California, Bethel Church, pastored by Bill Johnson. You've probably heard of the group Jesus Culture, right? Jesus Culture music? Well, guess where that comes from? It comes from Bethel. It comes from a, a, a den of wolves. Uh, so this, there, there's a little bit of distinction between Word of Faith and NAR, but not a lot. And what we're seeing now is that these two groups are basically... Uh, melding together and just kind of becoming one stream. So what I want us to do this morning, uh, I've got about eight hours of material here that I'm going to try to crunch into two. 
or a little less than two, actually. So uh, if this seems a little bit disjointed, that's because it will be a little bit disjointed. So uh, what I want to do, I want to begin talking about a little bit about discernment, what the Bible has to say about discernment, answering a few of the objections that people raise when we warn others about false teachers. And then we'll look at some of the doctrines of the Word of Faith, New Apostolic Reformation Movement. So I'm going to try to cram all of that into our one session here this morning. And I'm going to try to end about 11.50, and I've been given permission to go a little bit over. So from 11.50 to about noon, we'll have about 10 minutes of Q&A. So if you have some questions, um, be thinking of those, and I'll do my best to answer those at the end of our time together. So let's talk a little bit about discernment. The Bible has a great deal to say about discernment. The primary word for discernment in the Hebrew language is the word ben, and it means insight, understanding. It means to separate things from one another at their points of difference in order to make a distinction. And this word is used um, about 250 times throughout the Old Testament. Discernment is a prominent theme. The book of Proverbs has a great deal to say about it. The primary word for discernment in the Greek language is the word diacrisis. Diacrisis means a distinguishing, a clear discrimination, and judging. Oh, well, I didn't think we were supposed to judge as Christians. Well, talk about that in just a little bit. And then the verb form of the same word, anachrono, it means to distinguish, to separate out, to test. Dear friends, we are to test all things. 1 Thessalonians 5.21, right? Test all things, hold fast to that which is good. We are to test everything through the lens of Scripture. We are to even test ourselves, are we not? We are to examine ourselves to see if we are truly in the faith. Discernment is not an option for the Christian. It's not an option. It is our duty. It is our mandate to be discerning. And people say, oh, well, discernment, that's just not my thing. You know, I'm going to leave that up to someone else. No, it is incumbent upon all of us to exercise discernment. Because one of the things that makes false teachers so appealing to people and yet so dangerous at the same time is that not everything that false teachers teach is false. Okay, some of it is right. But there's enough error and heresy mixed in with it to corrupt the entire thing. Benny Hinn is a false teacher. He's a false prophet. If Benny Hinn is not a false prophet, then the term literally has no meaning. And yet, not everything that Benny Hinn says is wrong. In fact, I have heard him, honestly, I've heard him present the gospel better than some Baptist preachers I've heard preach the gospel. He's still a false prophet. But it is that mixture of error and heresy that is so very dangerous. If you take a a glass of water and put in just a couple of drops of strychnine into that water and drink it, It'll kill you, even though 99% of the water would be perfectly fine. But a little bit of poison corrupts the whole thing. The Bible says a little leaven does what? Leavens the whole lump. The quintessential passage for discernment undoubtedly, Acts chapter 17, verse 11. For the Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica, Thessaloniki, and that they received the word with all readiness of mind, searching the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. The Apostle Paul and Silas were out preaching the gospel. They came to the city of Thessaloniki, and uh, many of the people there received Paul and Silas, but there was a group of rabble-rousers there that made things very dangerous, kind of ginned up a, a mob against Paul and Silas. And so the other Christians shepherded them out of Thessaloniki for their own safety. And so Paul left there, and they came to the city of Berea. 
And in Berea, Paul and Silas were received much better than they were in Thessaloniki. And the Bible says that the Bereans were more noble. Now, why? Why were the Bereans more noble? Well, I think we have three indications. Number one, the Bereans were considered noble because they studied the law. They were students of God's Word. Dear friends, we must be good students of the Word of God. God has revealed Himself to us in His Son, Jesus Christ, and we have a perfect, inerrant, infallible, all-sufficient record of that in His Word. And we cannot know God apart from knowing His Word. And so we must be good students of the Word of God. And you may have heard someone say something like this. Well, well, I don't need doctrine. You know, I don't need theology. I, I, just, I just love Jesus. That is a foolish statement. That is a foolish statement. Because it is sound doctrine. It is right theology that deepens our knowledge of God. And when our knowledge of God is deepened, then that enables our love for God to be deepened. And our love for God uh, cannot be any deeper than our knowledge of God. And people today have somehow separated knowledge of God and love for God. And they'll say, well, your knowledge, you got your knowledge over here, doctrine, theology, that's one thing. But, but over here you see is your love for God. That, your love is what's really important, not, not your knowledge, your love for God. And yet Paul says something very interesting in Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. Paul says, in this I pray that your love would abound still more and more in what? Knowledge and discernment. Knowledge and discernment. You see, the Bible never separates knowledge of God and love for God. It always combines these things. And so all these people that talk about how much they love Jesus... And yet they never pick up their Bibles. They couldn't tell you the difference between Romans and Revelation. Then I would submit to you they don't love Jesus nearly as much as they profess to love Him. If you love someone, you want to get to know that person, right? And the only way to get to know Christ is by knowing Him in His Word. And so we must be good students of the Word of God. Okay, for time's sake, I'm going to skip over some stuff here. Also, the Bereans were considered noble because they tested what they heard by the Scriptures. They received Paul and Silas. They received what they were teaching. But notice that they did not take what Paul and Silas were teaching at face value. It says they searched the Scriptures to see if these things are really so. I would encourage you not to take what a preacher preaches at face value. Search the Scriptures to see if these things are really so. I would encourage you not to take what I teach you today and Thursday at face value. Search the Scriptures to see if these things are really so. Because I'm not the authority God's Word is. We must search the Scripture. Be good Bereans and see if these things are really so. How important is discernment? I want to show you a passage of Scripture. This is very, very sobering. Romans chapter 1. Paul writes, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind. The most fearsome act of God's judgment, it's not earthquakes and fires and famines and pestilences, it's when God gives people over the wrath of His abandonment. 
gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality. Watch this list of sins. Wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, gossips, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, undiscerning. Is that not sobering? Notice in the same list of horrific sins, sins from which hopefully all of us would recoil, Paul says, undiscerning, lacking discernment. One of the marks of spiritual immaturity is a lack of discernment. You cannot be a mature believer and lack spiritual discernment at the same time. It's just not possible. A spiritually mature Christian is by definition one who has Discernment, among other things, but certainly discernment. So if you're lacking discernment, you're an immature believer at best, at best. But notice here, Paul puts this list in the sins, list of sins that mark the lives of the unregenerate. These are not backslidden Christians. These are people who've been given over. These are lost people. And so if your life is characterized by one or more of these sins, that's real reason to examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Now, we're not talking about brand new Christians. Someone who has just come to faith in Christ and they've got no background of Bible knowledge or Bible instruction. They've just come to faith in Christ. You know, they're not going to have a lot of discernment right out of the gate. Okay? Uh, they should have some, but not a lot right out of the gate. But guess what's going to happen? If you are truly indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God will create in you a desire to read and study God's Word he will illumine the meaning of that word to you. And as you grow in your understanding of the word of God, guess what you're going to get? You're going to get discernment. You won't be able to avoid it any more than you would be able to avoid getting wet when you jump into a swimming pool. It's just going to happen. And so all of these people who claim to have been Christians for 5, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and yet they've got no discernment, something's wrong. Something, something is wrong. If the Holy Spirit of God is strong enough to save us, He is also strong enough to deliver us out of deception. A few years ago, I got an email from a, a gentleman, and he had seen some of my work against the prosperity gospel, and he emailed me. Boy, he was irate. He was just mad. He was fit to be tied. And he said, uh, uh, I've seen what you've said about Joel Osteen. You know who Joel Osteen is, right? Pastor of Lakewood Church, the largest church in the United States. And I say that term loosely, church, because it's not really a church. But Joel Osteen is a false prophet. It's a false prophet, false teacher. Uh, by his own admission, Joel Osteen does not preach on sin. Uh, and I'm not putting words in his mouth. He'll tell you that. I don't preach on sin. Well, how do you preach the gospel if you don't preach on sin? And all of his sermons are alike. All of them. If you've heard one of Joel Osteen's sermons, you've heard them all. They're all about... God loves you. He wants to bless you. You're a victor, not a victim. And your miracle's just around the corner. You just got to stay in faith. That's it. You just heard the entirety of his theology. That's all he's got. Uh, I would leave his church out of sheer boredom, if nothing else. <laughs> and so this gentleman emailed me, and he was just irate about what I said about Joel Osteen. He said, my wife and I are... We, he said, we have both been saved for over 50 years. He said, we love Joel Osteen. And I emailed him back and I said, sir, I'm concerned for you. 
This man claims to have been saved for over half a century, and he likes Joel Osteen. Something's wrong. If the Holy Spirit of God is strong enough to save us, he is strong enough to deliver us out of deception. Now, I want to look at a couple of the uh, objections that people raise. People will say, people will say this, well, you can't deny signs and wonders. You can't deny that this movement has signs and wonders. And my answer to this is, uh, oh, yes, you can deny it. Absolutely you can. I want to show you this verse, Matthew 7. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. That is a chilling passage of Scripture. There will be people on that day, and they will stand before Christ, and they will say, Lord, Lord, a, 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 an air of familiarity. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons? Did we not perform many miracles, signs and wonders? I never knew you. Just because someone has the apparent ability to perform a sign and wonder does not necessarily mean that that ability is coming from God and does not mean that that person knows Christ. I want to show you a, I want to show you a video clip. Bethel Church, Redding, California. There we go. Um, Bethel Church is known for signs and wonders. They have the School of Supernatural Ministry. Uh, they claim that their students, some they've, they've even claimed some of their students have walked through walls, uh, walked on water. Conveniently, there's no video of this actually happening. And when a day and age when everybody and their uncles got a smartphone, but somehow nobody has video of their students walking on water. I would take video of that if I saw if I saw somebody walking on water. I'd probably video worthy. But there's no video of any of these miracles. But they do say that glory clouds appear in their services, uh, that gold dust appears in their services. And they say that's the Shekinah presence of God. Watch this. Here's some video of it. Impressive presence of God, right? No, it's not. You want you know what that is? It's glitter. It's gold glitter. A few years ago, I was preaching in a church in Miami, Florida, and uh, a lady came up to me after one of my services, and she said, "Justin, I used to be a member of Guillermo Maldonado's church. Now, Guillermo Maldonado is kind of like the Bill Johnson of Miami, Florida. In fact, Guillermo Maldonado and Bill Johnson are good friends. They." cross-pollinate. They preach at each other's churches. They're really good friends. <laughs> and uh, she said, I used to be a member of Guillermo Maldonado's church. And she said, you know, we have gold dust appear in our services. She said, did you know that? I said, oh yeah, yeah, I knew that. I've seen the video of, well, this is Bethel, but I've seen video from uh, El Rey Jesus, the church in Miami. She said, I used to be a member of this church. I used to be high up in it. She said, God saved me, and she did exactly what you would expect a Christian to do. She left that cult. She said, but it was actually my job. 
I was given canisters of finely ground gold stationary glitter. And I was instructed to go upstairs and dump it into the ventilation system. And it would blow out on the congregation during the services. Guillermo Maldonado and Bill Johnson are friends. Same thing happens at Bill Johnson's church. They're wolves. They're charlatans. And again, before we get all wrapped up in Jesus culture, that's where Jesus culture comes out of. Another criticism is this. Well, touch not my anointed. Touch not my anointed. Don't criticize me. When you hear someone say, touch not my anointed, you can respond by saying, okay, okay, that's fine. Take not scripture out of context because that is what they are doing. Touch not my anointed. That's what they always say when a little bit of criticism comes their way. Touch not my anointed. Well, take not scripture out of context. Touch not my anointed is in the Bible. He permitted no man to oppress them, referring to Israel. He reproved kings for their sakes. Touch not my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. So it is in the Bible, but what does it mean? Well, in context, the anointed ones refers to Israel's patriarchs and their descendants, not to today's modern preachers, okay? Not to today's modern preachers. But here's the real kicker. The word touch actually refers to doing physical harm, not to speaking the truth. You might remember that David had a couple of opportunities to kill Saul. Remember that? On one occasion, Saul was asleep. In the other occasion, Saul was, you know, nature had called, right? And so Saul was sitting there reading the paper, doing whatever he was doing. And David came up behind him and he cut off a piece of Saul's garment and he held it up. And he said, I would not touch the Lord's anointed. In other words, David was saying, I would not kill him. I could have. Here's a piece of his garment. But I would not touch the Lord's anointed. So we may be calling into question a lot of different false teachings taught by a lot of different false teachers, but none of us is chasing Benny Hinn down the street with a baseball bat. Okay, None of us is trying to do anybody any, any physical harm. So when you hear, touch not my anointed, you respond by saying, that's fine, take not scripture out of context. And another criticism, and then we'll shift gears here. Well, Justin, aren't they sincere? You know, it, Benny Hinn's confession the other day, he seemed sincere. Joel Osteen, he, he seemed so sincere. Well, sincerity is not the issue. Truth is the issue. Let's suppose we were to see a blind man walking towards a thousand-foot cliff. Who among us in here, if we saw a blind man walking towards a thousand-foot cliff, would just sit back and say, well, you know, I... I'm sure he's sincere. I'm sure he's sincere in, in what he's doing. And, and it wouldn't be very loving of me to, to correct him. That's not a loving thing to do. And so we just sit back and we say nothing. And we watch that man fall off the cliff and plummet to his death. Would anybody in here do that? Of course not. Every person in here if we were to see a blind man walking towards a thousand-foot cliff, we'd be running up to that man as fast as we could go, shouting at the tops of our lungs, Sir, stop. You're in great danger. You're going the wrong way. Turn around. It doesn't matter how sincerely he believed he was going the right way. 
And if you really want to love someone, dear friends, love them enough to tell them the truth. Because the truth is love. If you want to hate somebody, if you want to show hatred, the best way you can show hatred to someone is to see someone who is going the wrong way spiritually. Only unlike falling off a cliff, going the wrong way spiritually has eternal consequences. And the most loving thing we could do is to tell them the truth. The most hateful thing we could do is to know the truth and not tell them. If you really want to hate somebody, do that. Know the truth. Don't tell them. The most loving thing we can do is to tell them the truth. Okay, now I want us to spend the rest of our time looking at the doctrines of the health and wealth gospel. A lot of people think that the health and wealth gospel is just about, you know, fancy cars and private jets and Rolex watches and that kind of thing. No, the origins of the prosperity gospel are actually rooted in the metaphysical cults like Christian science, New Age, New Thought, Gnosticism. And so when you turn on Christian television today, TBN, Daystar, the Inspiration Network, um, the Word Network, Lucia Broadcasting, uh, Sun Life Broadcasting, all these things. When you turn on Christian television, upwards of 95% of what you see today on Christian television is not Christian. It's cultic doctrine that has been wrapped in some Christian lingo, wrapped in some Christian terminology to make it appear to be Christian when it in fact is not. Uh, The grandfather of the Word of Faith movement, the modern prosperity gospel, great-grandfather I should say, is a man named Phineas Quimby. Quimby was the father of New Thought, a metaphysical cult. And when I say metaphysical, that's a big word, but all it really means is beyond the physical realm, beyond what we can see and touch here. And when I say cult, any group or sect that may call itself Christian yet compromises or denies some of the fundamentals of the faith. Mormonism is a cult. Jehovah's Witnesses belong to a cult. Roman Catholicism is a theological cult, not a sociological cult, not a Jim Jones drink the Kool-Aid kind of a cult. But it is a theological cult because it compromises and denies some of the fundamental tenets of historical Christianity. Roman Catholicism denies salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But Quimby was the father of a metaphysical cult known as New Thought. New Thought essentially held that whatever you think about, you will attract to yourself. Uh, So if you think positive, happy thoughts, your positive, happy thoughts will kind of go out into the ether somewhere and they will engage universal laws of attraction. And the universe will bring positive, happy things to you. Conversely, if you think negative thoughts, then your negative thoughts will go out into the ether somewhere and the, the universe will bring negative things to you. And so whatever you think about will become physical reality. You create your own reality by the things that you think and the words that you say. Uh, Mary Baker Eddy, you may have heard her name. Mary Baker Eddy was a student of Phineas Quimby, and she took his teachings and developed from his teaching what is today known as Christian science. Christian science. Christian science is very poorly named, by the way, because Christian science is neither Christian nor is it scientific. Kind of like grape nuts, you know? (laughs) They're not grape and they're not nuts. So Christian science is not Christian and it's not scientific. But uh, there's a lot of 
Christian science overtones in the modern word of faith movement. Watch this from Andrew Womack. If you are reaping sickness, it's because you've thought sickness. It may not be that you've thought, all right, I want to be sick. But you've thought things that allow sickness to dominate you. Such things as, well, I'm only human. I'm just a man. It's flu season. i got to get sick because it's flu season. You may not have sat there and have thought, I want the flu. But you've thought things that made you inferior to flu and that made you only human. You were denying and not focused on who you are in Christ, that no plague will come nigh your dwelling. And you have thought things that made you susceptible to Satan stealing your health. So if you are sick, it's because you've been thinking sick thoughts. It's your fault that you're sick. This is new thought theology. This is Christian science. This is not biblical. Word of Faith, New Apostolic Reformation Movement is cultic doctrine wrapped in some Christian lingo. The prosperity preachers, by the way, while I'm thinking about it, prosperity gospel, there are no adjectives to the gospel. Okay? There is no prosperity gospel. There is no social gospel. If you have to add an adjective to the gospel, you got a different gospel. Okay? There's just the gospel. But uh, the prosperity preachers teach that whatever you think about will become your reality. Also, whatever you speak. The doctrine known as positive confession. If you speak good things, good things will happen to you. If you speak negative things, your, your words literally, they teach that your words have the creative power of God himself. That we can literally speak things into existence just like God did. Oh, Justin, you're, you're exaggerating. They don't really teach that, right? Uh, yeah, they do. This is a tweet from Creflo Dollar. Creflo Dollar, undoubtedly the most aptly named of the prosperity preachers. <laughs> he says this, As spiritual beings who possess the nature of God, we have the ability to speak things into existence just like God did. So yes, they do teach this. Yes, they do. This from uh, Joel Osteen. You remember the account in Luke's gospel? Elizabeth and her husband Zechariah, remember that? And the angel gave the announcement to Elizabeth that she was gonna, they were going to have a baby, who of course would be John the Baptist. And when Zechariah heard about this, he doubted it, right? Because they were old. You know, they were well past childbearing years. And, and he kind of questioned that a little bit. Remember, what did God do in response to Zechariah's questioning? What did God do? Closed his mouth, right? Made him a mute. For a very interesting take on why God closed Zechariah's mouth, this from Joel Osteen. Joel Osteen says this, Why did God take away his speech? It's because God knew that Zechariah's negative words would cancel out his plan. See, God knows the power of our words. He knows that we prophesy our future, and He knew Zechariah's own negative words would stop His plan. Wow. So according to Joel Osteen, God was up in heaven looking down, and He saw Zechariah making negative confessions, and God just went into a panic. Oh my goodness, you know, what, what am I ever going to do? I, I wasn't counting on this. And so in a last-ditch effort to save His plan of redemption, God had to reach down and close Zechariah's mouth and make him a mute. Whew, boy, that was a close one. Unbelievable.
this is not the God of the Bible. The God of the prosperity gospel, little g God, is a very weak, very effeminate, very indecisive God, and it is not the God of the Bible. It's not the God of the Bible. At the foundation of the prosperity gospel is what is known as the little God's doctrine. They actually teach that we are gods. Watch this from Creflo Dollar. Now, in verse 26 and verse 27, God now submits himself to this principle of everything producing after its own kind. And in verse 26 and 27, let's read it out loud. Ready? Read. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Now that's interesting because if everything produces after its own kind, we now see God producing man. And if God now produces man and everything produces after its own kind, if horses get together, they produce what? And if dogs get together, they produce what? If cats get together, they produce what? But if the Godhead gets together and say, let us make man, then what are they producing? They're producing gods. Now, I got to hit this thing real hard in the very beginning because I ain't got time to go through all this. But I'm going to say to you right now, you are gods, little g. You are gods because you came from God and you are gods. You're not just human. The only human part about you is this physical body that you live in. The real me is just like God. The real me is just like God. Blasphemy. Blasphemy. Dear friends, when the Bible says that God created man in his image, that means that as human beings, you and I are the pinnacle of God's creation. And I don't care what PETA says, you and I are of way more value than anteaters and aardvarks. We are the pinnacle of God's creation, and we have the potential and the capacity through a saving relationship with Jesus Christ to know God. None of the other created order has that privilege and ability. But the Bible is very clear that there is only one God. There is only one God. And He is a jealous God who will not share His glory with another. There is only one God. But this little God's doctrine is why they, so, they hold so tenaciously to health and wealth. Because we're gods. And a God cannot be poor. And a God certainly cannot be sick. You see, so many people think that this is just about health and wealth. No, health and wealth is just some of the bad, low-hanging fruit off of a rotten theological tree, a tree that is rotten and dead at its core. 
This is a false gospel. It's a false gospel. Watch this from Jesse Duplantis. Friends have frank and open conversations with each other. I've done that with the Lord. I've had the Lord say, uh, Jesse, I've had God come tell me, say, this is what I'm going to do. I've had the Lord say, what do you think about this? God has asked me for my opinion. God asks Jesse Duplantis for his opinion? Do tell. <laughs> now, I don't want to take him out of context. We'll let Mr. Duplantis finish his thought here. I said, well, Lord, since you asked, maybe I'm doing it. He said, no, we can talk frankly. What do you think? I said, well, I don't think you ought to do that. He said, why you don't think I ought to do that? I said, well, you know, and I know you know people more than I do, but you know, Lord, if you just let me, let me do a little bit more work on this individual, I think we can get them to you. He says, okay, go ahead. Do what you have to do. And I tell you what, the Bible says he who wins souls is wise. And he who thinks he can counsel God is a fool. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding? Well, I guess it was Jesse Duplantis. <laughs> you see the unimaginable arrogance of these people. Watch this. Now, this is a video from someone you probably are not familiar with. This is from Seth Dahl. D-A-H-L. Seth Dahl is on staff at Bethel Church, Redding, California, Bill Johnson. Watch this from Seth Dahl. I had a, I had a pastor say some things that hurt me really bad. Hurt me so bad, messed me up emotionally, mentally, really messed me up. Nothing physical, nothing like that. A, a, a pastor I, I really respected said some words and hurt me so bad. And one time I was laying on the floor, actually it was in this room. I'm laying on the floor and in, an, in a vision, in an encounter with God, in a vision, Jesus picks me up and holds me so close that I can't see anything. And he holds me so close and Jesus starts to weep. And he says, Please forgive me. Please forgive me. I said, what are you talking about? Please forgive you. He said, when that pastor hurt you, it's as if I hurt you because he's a member of my body. Please forgive me. Sometimes blasphemy is just not strong enough a word. That is shocking. The very notion that the sinless Son of God could, would come to a sinful, wretched, vile creature and ask Him for forgiveness? Blasphemy. Blasphemy. These people are not Christians. Oh, Justin, you're, you're saying not, they're not even saved? That's exactly what I'm saying. That's exactly what I'm saying. One of the great ironies in this movement is that people in this movement that have the, they speak in tongues and have dreams and visions and God talks to them all the time and signs and wonders, 
And they would look, it's such a, uh, an emphasis, they say, on the Holy Spirit of God. They would look at someone like me or someone like most of us, I think, in here who are, you know, not into that, uh, who are cessationists. And uh, cessationists, by the way, cessationism is not the belief that all of the spiritual gifts have ceased, only the sign gifts have ceased. But they would look at people like us and they say, oh, you don't believe in the Holy Spirit. You don't believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. On contraire. I am so confident in the person and the power of the Holy Spirit of God that I do not believe that someone can be indwelt by Him and teach these kinds of blasphemies. It's not possible. If these people were truly indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, the very first time they uttered one of these kinds of blasphemies, the Holy Spirit of God would bring them to their knees under such heavy conviction. And the fact that they teach these things year after year after year, decade after decade, and even after having been called on it, and yet they remain unrepentant. That is not someone who is indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. And so the great irony is that the people who claim to have such a high view of the Holy Spirit of God, they actually have the lowest view of the Holy Spirit of God. The lowest view. Um, watch, this from, uh, watch this from Joel Joel Osteen and Joseph Prince. Now this is kind of tricky. You have to listen carefully to this. Watch this from Joseph Prince to do this, but you're getting the same kind of response, aren't you? People yes. need and, and want. You know, the word repentance, uh, like Joel said, is from the Greek word metanoia, which literally means change your mind. And uh, every time, like Joel or, or me preaching the word, without using the word repentance sometimes, but people's minds are being changed all the time. Mm -hmm. From thinking this way negatively to thinking positively. So, Joseph Prince says that the word for repentance is the word metanoia. And you know what? He's right. That is the Greek word for repentance. And he says the word metanoia means to change your mind. Guess what? Right again. But then did you notice how he fleshed it out? He said, you know, we, referring to himself and Joel Osteen, we may not use the word repentance. Heaven forbid we actually use biblical terminology in our preaching. Wouldn't want to do that. So, so we may not use the word repentance, but we still teach people to repent. When they go from thinking negatively to thinking positively, that's not repentance. According to his definition of repentance, we could all repent simply by joining the Optimist Club. You know, just having a sunnier outlook on life. Everything's just sunshine, lollipops, and unicorns all the time. That's not repentance. Repentance is a change in mind, but dear friends, genuine repentance comes when God grants repentance. Because that initial repentance unto salvation is granted by God. And when God grants repentance, yes, our minds are changed, but everything about us is changed. Our desires are changed. Our affections are changed. And there is fruit in keeping with real repentance. And this fruit should be tangible fruit that should be evident to everybody around us. So yes, metanoia in and of itself does mean a change in mind, but dear friends, the full meaning of a word is not always determined simply by the dictionary or the lexicon. Look at how the word is used in its context. 
because it is the Holy Spirit of God who places the words in Scripture in their proper context, and He is the one who determines the full meaning of a word, not just the dictionary. Um, okay, I'm going to have to land this plane here. Uh, I want to close with this, and then we'll go to uh, Q&A. Jude 3 through 4, Jude writes, he says, Beloved, I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation. But I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. I really try to keep Jude 3 through 4 in the forefront of my mind as I go about doing my preaching and doing my work in discernment and warning about false teachers. Uh, notice that Jude's first desire was to what? Write about our common salvation. He wanted to write about the gospel. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That's what he wanted to write about. But I felt it necessary to write to you, to exhort you, to earnestly contend for the faith once for all handed down to the saints. Why? Because certain men have crept in unnoticed. So, dear friends, yes, we must be about the work of discernment. We must be about warning people about false teachers and false doctrines. In fact, did you know 26 of the 27 books in the New Testament warn about false teachers and false doctrine. The only book in the New Testament that has nothing to say about false teaching or false teachers is the book of Philemon. All the rest of them do. So yes, we must do this. We are commanded to do it. And yet, it is a task that at some level should grieve us that it is necessary to do in the first place. Our first desire should be to talk about our common salvation. And I think I can honestly tell you that I would love nothing more if I were to wake up in the morning and see where Benny Hinn and, and all these others have repented of their false doctrine and that this seminar warning, about, warning people about false teachers was not necessary. I would love that. I wish it wasn't necessary. There are some people, some discernment ministries out there that are so, they have this caustic edge to them. They, they almost seem just, just angry and it almost seems like if there wasn't a false teacher to go after, then they would be disappointed. And so I encourage you, exercise discernment. Be aware of the false teachers. Warn people about them. But in doing so, don't go too far to the extreme. Don't ever let yourself get to the point where that is all you think about and all you do. Okay? So yes, we must do it. But it should be a task that should grieve us that it is necessary to do in the first place. Okay, does that make sense? Okay, dear ones, uh, I just scratched the surface of what I wanted to get through, but uh, let's uh, take a few minutes Q&A. Does anybody have a question? Yes. Aaron. Is it gone? There we go. Um, what are your what is your opinion on the recent confession of Benny Hinn regarding the prosperity gospel? Yeah. Just out of curiosity, raise your hand if you've heard about that. Raise your hand if you know who Benny Hinn is. Everybody knows who Benny Hinn is. 
Raise your hand if you've heard about his confession. Okay. Uh, so Benny Hinn is the world's most infamous faith healer. Uh, he is known for his prosperity, theology, teaching on healing. Uh, he's been doing this for 40 years. 40 years. I've been to 17 of his crusades. Uh, I know how he does what he does. I wrote my master's thesis on Benny Hinn. And Benny Hinn came out in, uh, last week, September 3rd, Monday, put out a video in which he says he realizes now that his teaching on prosperity theology, prosperity gospel, has been wrong. He's been wrong all this time. Uh, he no longer believes prosperity gospel. And people were just exuberant. Oh, Benny Hinn has repented. Even some people in our doctrinally sound theological circles were, were saying, oh, isn't this wonderful? Some people are expressing cautious optimism. Well, I, you know, I, I hope this is true. This sounds good. I hope this is true. But, you know, we'll, we'll see. But cautious optimism. I put out a video yesterday. You can go to YouTube. Uh, search Probably just search Justin Peters, Benny Hinn confesses, and it should come up. It's about an hour and 50 minutes long, so it's a little bit of an investment to watch it, but I, I, I talk about why this is not repentance. Benny Hinn is not repentant. He is not repentant. Uh, there's a lot of layers to this. One, not only has Benny Hinn taught prosperity theology for all these years, but he has claimed that God has spoken to him to tell him to teach this. And there are literally thousands of examples of Benny Hinn saying, God is speaking to me right now. He's speaking to me right now that if you sow a seed, sow a seed and you'll, the, God will heal you. God will, I've heard him promise people that if they give him money that they will find, they'll discover oil on their property and get rich. I mean, I, literally I've heard him, I've heard him tell people, uh, if you can't, people sick with cancer, sow seed, give me money, God will heal you. And he claims divine unction for this. So he has actually painted himself into quite the corner. He's actually made it worse for himself because if he is now saying that he no longer believes prosperity theology, well, wait a minute, Benny, because you've been saying for 40 years that God has told you to teach this. So were you lying? God didn't tell you to teach something that's wrong, obviously. So are you lying? God did not tell you to teach this. So he's either lying. He's been lying all these years about all these times that God has spoken to him. Or he's up to his eyeballs in demonic deception. One of those two things is true. Um, Benny Hinn is not repented because if Benny Hinn genuinely repented, genuine repentance, dear friends, bears fruit. Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Paul addressing King Agrippa. So King Agrippa, I kept declaring that all men everywhere should repent, perform deeds appropriate to repentance. Remember... Uh, Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19, Jesus confronted him and Zacchaeus was immediately convicted. He was a tax collector. He had swindled people out of money. And he said, he said, Lord, I will give half of my possessions to the poor. And then what did he say? If I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give what? Four times the amount back. That's real repentance. That's Repentance, dear friends, is not just saying, yeah, I was wrong. That's not repentance. Repentance is not even saying I'm sorry. By the way, I have not yet heard Benny Hinn say I'm sorry. He just said I was wrong. 
He hasn't apologized to all the millions of people he has defrauded and exploited over the last four decades. Not once. But if he was truly repentant, if he was truly repentant, here's what Benny Hinn would do. He would empty every cent of his ministry coffers, give every cent he has in his ministry to doctrinally sound churches. He couldn't possibly repay everybody he has defrauded four times. He couldn't do that if he wanted to. That You could pay off the national debt with that kind of money. But he should empty his ministry coffers, give every cent to doctrinally sound churches or ministries. Shut his ministry down. Shut it down. Why should he shut it down? Because he's not qualified to preach. He's not above reproach. He's not able to teach sound doctrine or refute those who contradict. He doesn't meet the biblical qualifications for a teacher. If he's truly repentant, he should know that. So he should shut his ministry down, join a good doctrinally sound church, sit in the pew for years and years, and submit himself to biblically uh, sound teaching done by biblically qualified elders and learn. Then we'd be getting somewhere. The evidence that Benny Hinn has repented is not as if his if is if his preaching changes, it's if his preaching stops. That would be real repentance. Benny Hinn is not repentant. Okay. We'll do one more before we run down and, and go to lunch. Does anybody have one more question? And just so you know, Justin's going to come back on Thursday uh, and, and speak to us one more time, and then hopefully we'll have a Q&A with him later on in the semester too. But, Corey, did you have one? Okay. So these people that you've been showing videos of are pretty clearly heretical in their teaching. What do you do with people who aren't necessarily false teachers but are teaching something false? And how, So how do you discern the difference between a false teacher and a teacher that's teaching something wrong, and what do you do with their teaching? Yeah, yeah, great question. So uh, all heresy is error, but not all error is heresy. Okay? Uh, I have no doubt that I have taught things. In fact, I know I have. In fact, I'm glad some of my early sermons are not recorded. <laughs> uh, I have no doubt that I have taught things that, that were wrong. I've never taught heresy. Um, I, uh, I'm premillennial, pre-trib in my eschatology. Is it possible that I'm wrong about that? It's possible. I don't think I am. If I thought I was, I wouldn't hold that position. But... You know, it's possible I am, but that's not heresy. Um, I don't think Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. Is it possible he wrote the book of Hebrews? It's possible. I doubt it, but I suppose it's possible. Uh, I might be wrong about that, but that's not heresy. So, so you have to differentiate between heresy and just, you know, as I said, all heresy is error. Not all error is heresy. A false teacher is marked by a few things. Habitually teaching heresy, claiming that God speaks to him or her when he's not, uh, false prophecies, a life marked by greed, a life marked by an unwillingness to be corrected. When shown the truth from Scripture, a false teacher is not going to bend the knee to that truth. Uh, they're greedy. False teachers are also, 99% of them are immoral, sexually immoral. Um, so, you know, if you hear someone say, you know, I think Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, you're like, eh, probably didn't. Doesn't make him a, doesn't make him a heretic. 
So does that make sense? Justin, thank you uh, for being here, and we're glad to, glad that you're here, glad that you're coming back, too. I don't know if I've ever heard chapel oh. this quiet uh, as you've been teaching. May I say something real quick? Please, yes, please. Uh, Thursday, what we're going to talk about Thursday is the sufficiency of Scripture. We're going to talk about how God does and does not speak to us. So I try to cram in a lot today, but Thursday you have one primary topic, how God does and does not speak to us, how to know when God is speaking. We're, that's what we're going to talk about Thursday. Great, so. great. One quick note before we head down to lunch. Justin uh, has a few resources, resources that would be very helpful, I think, in future ministry. And so if anybody's interested in those, they're on a table down there, and you can find them. Justin, you're coming to lunch with us? I am. You and, are, okay. Yeah. And so if you're interested, you can come and, and see him uh, down there during lunch. And uh, we'll head down there right after he prays and closes for us. Would you yeah. do that, Justin? Sure, sure will. And um, if the if the resources, if you need these resources and money is tight, help yourself. Okay, it's fine. Ten dollars for the DVDs, but if money is tight, help yourself. You don't even have to ask me. So, let's close. Father, we're grateful for this day that you've given to us, and uh, thank you for each and every one of these young men and women who are here this morning. I pray that this was a time of um, equipping, of edification sanctification for all of us as we grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Christ. I pray for these young adults. I pray that your perfect will would unfold in their lives as they grow. I pray that you would, uh, through your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would give them a, a resoluteness to uh, stand firm against temptation, that they would carry themselves in such a way that honors Christ, that, that they would have ministries that glorify Christ. And um, For the ladies here who would grow up and teach other ladies, uh, uh, be godly wives to their husbands. I, I just pray for these young people, and I pray that Christ our King would be glorified in our lives of obedience. In His name we pray.